Dubuque. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. No, it does. Are you going to do the, uh, the Duke talking baseball intro? Well, KC was winning. Okay. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella. Well, I tell you what, we got some movement. Yes, we did, and I'm talking about the free agent market since the last time we shared some time on the pine. Hi, everybody. Kurt Bavakwa with you. Welcome to Dirty Kurt's Dugout, Episode 7, Season 2. And you know what? There's some shows you look forward to, and there's some shows, well, I kind of look forward to all of them, but there's some shows that I really look forward to. This is going to be one of them, only because of Chris Welsh. He's a former teammate. I wish I would have got to spend more time with him here in San Diego. We were teammates for a couple of years. The reason we didn't spend a lot of time together was when I was on the bench or on the field, he was in the bullpen or on the mound. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time together because we didn't hook up and run together. Boach and I used to run around and go to dinner. And Welshie, I can't even remember who he used to, he used to run around with. I think Flan, maybe. We'll, we'll talk to him about that, though. But here's a guy that spent some good amount of years in the big leagues. His family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. He's been working for the Big Red Machine, the MLB Network, for the last 26 years. Since 1993, and he used to live in some kind of neighborhood. And I'm talking about Moeller High School in Cincinnati, Ohio. That brought us Buddy Bell, Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Larkin. That's all, plus their sons. What a baseball neighborhood. What a baseball town. Our other guest tonight is going to be Jonathan Daniel. Wrote a book called Finale. I'm going to let you dwell on that for a second and try to figure out what it's about. But before we bring Jonathan on, I'm going to go right to Goodyear. At least I think he's in Goodyear. He might be in the upper end of Goodyear because that's just the way he is. Chris Welsh, welcome to the show, Chris. What's up, my friend? How we doing there, KB? You doing all right? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? Doing great, man. Doing really great. Tell me about BaseballRulesAcademy.com. <laughs> I know we talked you know, about it last time last year when you came on, but it's a, it's an interactive website that teaches the rules of baseball. I've used it a couple of times with video lessons and quizzes. I mean, I'm telling you, folks, I'm not just doing a promotion because he's on the show. This is really a cool website to go to. And if you're listening and want to just shoot onto that website and take a look around, you will go back, I promise. Chris, how's it doing? Well, you know, it's doing great, uh, Kurt. And thanks for bringing it up. I do appreciate that very much. You know, the website's completely free. And um, so we made, you know, you do log on, you become a user, but that doesn't cost a dime. And you can go back as many times as you want. You can look up a rule and get the rule itself. You can look up a high school rule, college rule, international rules, and so on. Uh, and, but the, really the, what we try to do is to make 
learning some of the, the quirky rules of baseball easy. And we do that through video. And if you really want to get deep into a rule, we've got case studies and insider reports and things that, that take a, a, a play that may have happened at a major league level and just dissect it right down to the very bone. In fact, uh, just over the last few days, the, the Reds played the Angels in a, in a spring training game, and there was a very odd interference play at second base where the bases were loaded, ground ball the second baseman, and the second baseman uh, bobbled the ball. He deflected it about six to seven feet away from him. And when he went to go after the ball after it got deflected, the runner ran into him. And uh, a lot of people thought, oh, that's got to be obstruction or maybe that's nothing, you know, incidental contact, but there's really nothing like that in the, in the baseball rules. And it turned out to be a, uh, an interference call on the runner, even though the fielder bobbled the ball he still has a chance to go get it. So I put that up on Twitter, and a lot of people are arguing about it and all. So it's kind of fun that people are aware of the rules because it seems like that's the last frontier. Uh, you know, analytics, uh, weightlifting, you know, heavy balls for throwing harder, all the, the training techniques are there. But where a lot of players are lax is understanding the actual rules. Chris Welsh, my guest, broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds, been in that booth for, wow. A long time. It's 20, amazing. 20, yeah. You know, I'm not going to ask you to do math in public, okay? So I'll do it for Please you. Please don't. Go ahead. <laughs> 27. This is my 27th year. And, and i got to tell you, if I played for 27 instead of playing for five, I'd be driving a lot nicer car right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah, but you're having a good time and doing what you're doing. I know, Chris, you mentioned Twitter. Uh, Chris can be found at Think Pitch because he'll, uh, he'll throw an old thing in there. As a matter of fact, him and Flan go back and forth. Flan, of course, got the uniform on for the last time with the San Francisco Giants. Of course, I'm talking about Tim Flannery. And uh, my guest, Chris Welsh. Welcome to Dirty Kurtz Dugout, everybody. Moeller High School. Did you actually go to that school? No, I didn't. Actually, they were my arch rivals. Uh, as odd as it sounds, I grew up within walking distance of Moeller High School. I ended up going across town to a, a rival named uh, St. Xavier High School, but Boy, that's a that's a powerhouse. Uh, not only for you know high school athletics, but the number of, of uh, uh, baseball players that they put in the major leagues uh, is really incredible. When you start looking at the list, okay. So, tell me what you question. had to do with Robin Roberts well, getting a job you know, as a South Florida baseball coach. Yeah, you know that that's more of a story than anything else, but. Uh, you know, it's funny how things work out. I'm not exactly sure what you're what you're referring to, but I can tell you that we were huge baseball fans growing up. My dad would take me down to Old Crosley Field in Cincinnati and then Riverfront Stadium. And at the very end of his career, Robin Roberts pitched. It wasn't for the Philadelphia Phillies because he, he pitched about 22 years in the major leagues. And uh, he had warmed up. He was getting ready to go into the game. And, I, and my dad was a huge Robin Roberts fan. He was from the East Coast originally. And... Uh, uh, outside of Philadelphia in Wilmington, Delaware. I was born there. And uh, he said, go on down there and get Robin Roberts autographs. And I tore off a piece of the program, went down there with a pencil, and I said, hey, Mr. Roberts, can you sign this? And uh, he said, well, kid, you know, I'm not supposed to. The game's going on. And uh, uh, you know, he was going to pitch the bottom of the first inning for the visiting team. And he said, but I'll sign it for you anyway. So years later, you know, fast forward the clock to when I'm, I'm a, now a senior in college at the University of South Florida, and Robin Roberts gets a coaching job. And one of the first things he does is he wants to judge what the pitchers have you know, on his team. How good arms does he have? So normally guys go down and look at them in the bullpen, but not Robin. 
he stood up at home plate and he'd each pitcher step on the mound and throw a few pitches. And uh, I, I, ta- I, I got the ball back from the catcher before my first pitch. I said, hey, 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 coach, you may not know this, but, you know, when I was, you know, 10 years old, I asked you for your autograph. And fortunately, you gave it to me because if you didn't, I was going to drill you right now because I'd still be sore. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. No, just you having something to do with having some kind of a vote in well, yeah, Robin Roberts you, becoming the coach in that system was pretty cool as far as I was concerned. You know, that, that kind of backfired on me. I'll tell you, they, they back in those days, and I think a lot of colleges had the same thing. I had the honor of being the sole student representative on the what they call the Athletic Council. And they'd get some of the board of regents, and they'd get the athletic director, and they'd get you know all these different a few professors and heads of departments and so on. And they would be in charge of of a lot of the things going on athletically, you know, trying to raise money to to put a new soccer field up or hiring a new coach. We hired some. We hired a basketball coach. We hired a women's soccer coach. And now it came time to hire a, a baseball coach. And I would go to these meetings, and basically I, I was just over my head and intimidated because here I am a college kid and all these people, you know, a lot of them had PhDs, a lot of them were already, you know, uh, successful in, in business and so on, uh, or politics. So I mostly sat there uh, and didn't say anything until it was time to, to um, uh, you know, hire a baseball coach. And a lot of guys came through there. There were, there were some former major league players like uh, Sammy Ellis uh, who came through uh, and Larry Bernard. Who went on to be uh, become a coach uh, with the Montreal Expos? But when Robin Roberts threw his name into the hat, it was it was a no brainer for everybody, and everybody got the got the job. And I've never really told this story, but this is a true story that Larry Bernard was on the short list, and he was at a time in his life I didn't know this. I was a college kid, and I knew he pitched in the big leagues, but I really didn't know much about Larry Bernard. And the, the guy evidently really needed a job at that time, and I had no idea. And uh, so years later, when I end up, you know, bouncing around, I was a journeyman pitcher, you know, started with the Yankees, went to the Padres, ended up with the Expos a few years later. Larry Bernard was the pitching coach, and he just treated me in the coldest way you could, you could think. And I'm like, why can't this guy is, is friendly and happy to everybody else, but to me he's a real jerk. What's going on here? And he finally admitted to me, you know, months later, that he still held a grudge against me for not getting that South Florida coaching job. Um, because at that point in his life, he really needed the job. You know, he was down on his luck, and there were things going wrong in his personal life and so on. And, of course, I had no idea what that meant. He goes, you know, he goes, years later, I, I, I realized you had nothing to do with that. But still at the time, I held, I held it against you because you're the only one I ever saw after that meeting. <laughs> How about well, that story? It's good he got over it. It's good he got, <laughs> he over, got it. over it, too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Kurt Bavacqua here. Welcome to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. My guest, Chris Welsh, to start off Episode 7 of Season 2. I tell you what, for, for those of you that really don't understand the game and aren't going to get the next thing that I'm going to talk to Chris about, I feel sorry for you because it is one of the funniest phrases that I've ever heard in the game of baseball, and it happened just last year, and Chris was the one that coined it, and he said... That is a Pac-Man ball. That's what he said. Now, I used to love to play Pac-Man, and I used to hate to get jammed. So when I saw this, 
and he, him coming out with this with this phrase last year, I just cracked up. And so I had to look into it because I knew he was going to come on the show tonight. And this was a high inside fastball that was thrown by Cincinnati Red pitcher Sal Romero to Lewis Brinson of the Miami Marlins. Now, when you throw inside to a hitter and you've got some pretty good gas or good movement on the ball, you've got a really good chance to do what we call get in a hitter's kitchen. I know Chris exactly. was a pitcher. He used to love it. Evidently, this is what happened with Romero's pitch to Brinson. He got seriously in his kitchen. And if you remember the Pac-Man game, so all the people out there that l- love the Pac- Pac-Man and that are baseball fans, just think of the little Pac-Man guy getting in on this guy's bat and hand <laughs> and that ball being the little Pac-Man guy and just eating his fingers up. I mean, that's that's really comical. Every time I think about it, I just laugh so hard. That is a funny phrase. I mean, how did you come up with that? I, You know, I, I don't know. You know it, it, first of all, it goes to show you my age because a lot of the audience uh, – you know, that was watching the game that night, they had no idea what Pac-Man is. Uh, I mean, you know, we used to play Pong, right? And then we, when we went to Pac-Man, and we played some asteroids. But Pac-Man was one that you could play at any arcade, anywhere. And that just reminded me, that pitch came in there, and we saw it, you know, it was such a good pitch by uh, Sal Romano that, that, that we, we just kind of showed it in slow motion, too. And it just looked like the ball had teeth. And it started chewing on his fingers and then chewing on the bat and then chewing on his wrist. And pretty soon it was up to the sweatband. And I'm like, oh, he smokes that's like a Pac-Man ball right there. You don't want that in on your hands. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's sometimes the best things are the ones you don't even think about when you come up. And, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised and happy that you brought that up because, I'm, you know, I have a friend of mine who's an animator. And I'm going to uh, maybe get him to do a little short cartoon of what a Pac-Man ball really is. Oh, that would be, and then just, just put a little saying, uh, this goes on a t-shirt. So yep. you've got a guy throwing <laughs> a pitch, it's a Pac-Man ball, and it's just eating up the hitter, and you put, you got to throw inside to be successful. That's all you got to put. Boy. Amen to that. Let's go, let's go to the rules before I let you go. All kinds of ideas that are being thrown out there as far as the rule changes, the pitch clock. Uh, they're putting about talking about putting robots in the Atlantic League, uh, moving the mound back. I mean, they're, they're talking about everything. You're a rules guy. What, what's going to stick and what isn't? And what do we have to look for? Do we have anything different to look forward to in 2019? Well, you know, I, I think there's an awareness of the players to keep the game going on. But, you know, Kurt, here's, here's the, 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 the way baseball has changed, is that there are fewer balls put into play than ever before. Uh, I mean, it used to be back when you played, you know, if a guy struck out 10 batters in a night, that was a lot of strikeouts. Mm-hmm. And now you look at these box scores and, you know, it, it'll be four or five pitchers, but they may strike out 14 a night. And uh, and there's a, so there's a lot of uh, at bats that end either in a strikeout, a walk, or a home run, so that the defenses never even have a ball put into play. And uh, we were kidding this last summer when Adam Dunn was put into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame because I think he led the, the all the major leagues during the time that he played in the number of 
times he went to the plate where the ball never went in the play. And uh, he said, yeah, I made those owners pay, you know, uh, pay their, all those fielders out there for 60, 60% of the time they never put the ball in play. It was either a strikeout, a home run, or a walk. And I think that's the biggest problem uh, is that there's not enough action. So a lot of people are looking at, well, the time of the game uh, is too long. Now we're going over three hours, and, and uh, there's, 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 we've got to do something about that. There's more time between innings that are a problem, you know, on television games. Uh, my personal opinion is that I'm not so sure that the game needs to be changed. I don't think we need to lower the mound or put the mound back or even put a pitch clock in. We just got to get the players aware that you got to get up, get out of the on deck circle and get at home plate. Don't wait for the second stanza of your walk up music before you do that. Um, and uh, call them strikes that are strikes. You know, uh, uh, get the guys up there swinging the bat a little bit. And when you do that, uh, maybe that'll speed the game up on its own. But uh, I, I sure don't know that there's going to be any of these major rule changes that are actually going to stick and have much of an effect. Now, I, I put one out on Twitter <laughs> this winter, and I got absolutely killed by the people on Twitter about this. And here's my idea, okay? Here's the problem. Not enough balls into play. So what did I say? Okay, let's go back to what it used to be. Let's limit the number of pitches that any one team, in either in the game, can throw over the speed of 95 miles an hour. <laughs> and limit, lim, limit those to, say, 30 pitches a game. So if a team is going to throw 150 pitches in a game, you know, 30 of those can be 95 and above or 96 and above, and, you know, 120 of them have to be 95 and below. If you throw below 95 miles an hour, these guys are going to put the ball in play. And what you'd bring back are, are you know, some of the old-fashioned twirlers, you know, Louis Tiant style, curves and change-ups and Ethiopian change-ups and stuff like that, right? And um, those are the that, and, and I put that out on Twitter. You can tell you, people absolutely just roasted me. Um, so I thought I throw it out there and get on your show. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to roast you because I want to be the hitter after thirtieth the thirtieth ninety five mile an hour fastball is thrown. That, that well, I want to be the first it. hitter up. No, you, you'd say those to the end of the game because your closer is going to be throwing that hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, to- they all do. Yeah, and then the other the other thing is what, and the people don't understand. It would also protect pitchers' arms more, because the reason guys are blown out is that they're throwing too hard. Oh, absolutely! And, and nobody wants to admit that. And they also use too many sliders when they're young and things like that. But the fact is that they're just training so hard they're blowing out their ligaments, and uh, this would prevent that as well. So it has two benefits. Uh, but that wasn't good enough for the Twitter world because uh, I'm I'm still roasting. As a matter of fact, yeah, they didn't like that. They didn't like that. <laughs> well, you don't say too many things that people roast you about. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you coming on. I'm actually going to see you in about a week and a half. Oh, good. Uh, good. The I'm night, looking forward the night to that. game over in Peoria. Yeah, I bet you are. The night game over in Peoria, uh, where the Reds play the Padres. I will be there, and I'm going to hunt. I you will down. be there too, and I will good hunt deal. you down. Yeah. Hey, hey, thanks for bringing up my old roommate, Tim Flannery. I saw him the other day when the Giants came to town uh, in, in Goodyear, Arizona, that is. They played, uh, they played the Reds, and I, I saw Bochy, and I saw Flannery, and they were standing together just like old times there for uh, uh, with the Giants one last time. So uh, uh, yeah, I, I miss uh, all, all those days in San Diego. We had a really good time, and uh, uh, thanks a lot for having me on, Kurt. I appreciate so it. So you're the one that used to bring Flan out in Cincinnati. 
Well, <laughs> while I was running with boats, you and Flan were out there. And then we used, to, we used to run into one another. We would hit the streets and uh, we'd be the only ones on the street. <laughs> That's right. Chris, have a good night. I appreciate it, buddy. Continue to good stuff. All right, Kurt. Take care, buddy. This is Kurt Bavacqua with Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Episode 7, Season 2. That was Chris Welsh. 27 years he's been in the booth with the Cincinnati Reds. In eight years, on the field as a major league player. He's had a pretty good career. My next guest coming up, Jonathan Daniel. I mentioned it, the onset of the show. Finale. He's a Philly fan. So it's a takeoff on Philly. And finally, he wrote a book about the Phillies, Royals, and the 1980 baseball season that almost wasn't. We're not going to hold it against them for being a Philly fan. Bryce Harper's with the Phillies. We know that. I mentioned that on the onset of the show. So the free agent market is just languishing. Nothing's happening to speak of. And since we've been on the air the last time, since we've been together, two teams have spent $630 million on two players. <laughs> That's a pretty good jump. <laughs> I don't know if there's any complaining going on now in the Players Association. There will be because they're going to find reasons to complain about something. You have to. Things have been going too good for too long, and the owners are on the side of the fence where they've got everything in their court. We're going to talk to Jonathan Daniels about finale. Jonathan Daniel, my next guest on Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Jonathan, thank you for joining me tonight. How are you? I'm great, Kurt. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks. Um, I'm looking forward to grabbing some splinters with you. So I have to tell you, uh, with the exception of my good buddy, Craig Shoemaker, uh, who hasn't even been on my show yet, I'm threatening to put him on. You're the first <laughs> giant Philly fan that I've ever had on the show. Really? Yeah, because Pete didn't fall into that category when I had Rose on a few weeks back. He doesn't fall into categories being a Philly fan. But okay. when, there, when you do fall into the category of being a Philly fan, you are a true blue baseball fan. I agree. You guys are tough. <laughs> you guys are tough. I never really had to bother with Philly fans a whole lot, though. They were actually pretty good to me. I don't know why. I really don't know why. Maybe it's because I never did any damage. That was, that was probably the reason. So you've been in sports t television for 20 years now, huh? Yeah, I, I worked, I did, uh, was a producer uh, for a number of network stations, and then I actually did the Tampa Bay Rays magazine show for their first five seasons when I lived in Florida. I'm in Indiana now, so it's uh, been around a while, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, you can find Jonathan at Twitter, at Daniel, and I'm dying to know why 2033. Mike Schmidt and Larry Bird. Okay, see, there you go, folks. See, that's the kind of stuff you get from a Philly fan. 
When you come to California and you got people that have Twitter accounts, they're going to come up with something like the last four digits of their social or their address. They're not doing Larry Bird and Mike Schmidt. That's just absolutely would not even enter a sports or baseball fan in California's mind. It just wouldn't. Unless you're a transient from like New York or Philly or maybe Chicago and Boston. Those are the only four towns that you're going to get. Man, I take it back. Milwaukee. There, there's yeah. a chance with a Milwaukee fan. Yeah. So also Facebook at ADS, S for Sam, baseball slash. No, not baseball slash at all. That's how I've got it written down. Yep. I put the slash and put Facebook. So that's yep. how smart I am. It's at ADS baseball. So tell everybody about the book and why you decided to write it. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an 80s guy through and through. Um, and as you said, growing up a Phillies fan, uh, that team was pretty special to me. So I, I wanted to do something about the decade. I originally started to do something about the entirety of the decade, and I started to do research about, you know, individual happenings and one-offs and fights and all these other kinds of things and got way too far into it to realize that I was 50 or 60 pages of content in and hadn't even begun to tell the story of the season yet. So I figured I had to make a pivot and just focus on 1980, and that was a pretty easy decision for me to make um, based on what I already knew and, and my passion for that season and, and that team as well. So um, but it, it was a lot of fun. Um, fell down an awful lot of rabbit holes doing doing the research that I did, um, you know, and just finding all these stories. And and it, you know, it's it's interesting too to to look back on this stuff now because growing up in Ohio, like I did, you know, it, it's just a different era, right? I mean, you don't have access to West Coast newspapers, and you know, I'd get I'd get the the paper on Tuesday morning delivered to my house, and it would say late game not included. Any games that were that start weren't in the Eastern Time Zone. I, it's not at all uh, unusual that you'll find out who won that game until Wednesday. Um, you know, if they were on Monday. So um, to go, I, I found a lot of stuff that I'd never heard before. Um, and, and one of the things I've discovered too through this process is I, I put put some of this stuff out either on Twitter and Facebook and I have a bunch of people that say, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I never heard that. And then I have a whole bunch of people that will say, oh yeah, I was at that game. And that's been a really cool part of it for me is to connect with some of these people and, you know, share some of these stories. My guest, Jonathan Daniel, you know, John, I just had uh, Chris Welsh on on the show. He's He's another Ohio guy. Yeah, Exactly. As a matter of fact, a Cincinnati guy, and he told yep. me a trivia quiz that was pretty cool. Not a trivia All quiz, right. a trivia question. In 1986, he started about 10 games when Pete was a player manager. Okay. When Pete asserted himself in the lineup and Chris was on the mound, there were six guys on the field wearing red uniforms that were from Cincinnati. Hmm. So that would be Pete, Cobra, Larkin, uh huh, Buddy Bell, uh huh. Uh, let's see, that's four. Who else do we have? Oh, Ronnie Oster. Exactly. Uh, God, I'm missing the last one. Um, yeah, you get you got me on the last one. 
Now I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> but it was Dave Parker. I wouldn't have thought of Dave Parker. Yeah, he was he was a stud athlete oh, big in time. Uh, big time. But you got Chris, you got Dave, you got Pete. That's three. You right. got Larkin, Oster, and Bell. You got them all. Okay, there yeah, we go. You did good. All right. I thought that was a, a pretty cool little piece of trivia right there. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, you don't think of Cincinnati as a baseball hotbed, um, but there's been a lot of good players that have come out of that area. Um, so it's it was it's it's been fun. I mean, it, it was a great era to grow up in, and I, and I, like I said, or we talked about already, I grew up in Cincinnati area in the the era of the Big Red Machine, and I was a Phillies fan. So while my friends were pretending to be Johnny Bench, I was pretending to be Larry Boa. So. In the backyard. <laughs> you hit little bloopers in left center field. And exactly. those guys used to hit line drives into the seats. Exactly. <laughs> I was a table setter, Kurt. Yeah, but you had Trio to watch. I mean, he was a hell of a fielder. You had Pete to look up to. I mean, it, it, it was an iconic World Series in 1980. How long had it been, how, had it been before the Phillies won the World Series before that? They'd never won it. 97 years. Okay, that's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. So there's another bit of trivia. You learn a lot yeah, I mean, on this show. You see, there you go. Exactly. So we all remember the last out of the game. Of yes, course, another trivia question's coming here. We all remember who the pitcher was. My friend, God rest his soul, Tug McGraw. His, him jumping up in the air, arching his back, throwing his glove up. But who remembers who the hitter was? I know, Jonathan, that you know. Yeah. And I just happen to know because that's just the way it is. I mean, you just you remember things like that. But the hitter was Willie Wilson. Yeah. And the and, Kansas and City Willie, Royals had one heck of a baseball team. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, that to me is one of the better teams – let's say, of that era that didn't win a World Series. Um, I mean, and the, the crazy thing about Willie Wilson, too, George Brett that season hits 390 and doesn't even lead his own team in hits because Willie had, I think, 220 or 230 hits that year. Um, just, you know, he had a phenomenal season, but he had a terrible World Series. I, he, I think he struck out 11 times, um, So, which is a shame, I mean, for him, uh, but... You know, that that was a really, really good team. What did Willie hit that year? 330, somewhere in there. And he lost the batting um, title by 60 points. <laughs> well, I mean, but he see, he never walked either, too. So he had 700 and some, at, or 600 or 700 at-bats. Or plate appearances, I guess. Now, he didn't have 700 at-bats, but he had... He had a lot of at-bats, but, I mean, obviously, yeah, but you hit 330 or whatever and lose the batting title by 60 points to your teammate. Well, when you don't walk very often, you uh, you tend to have uh, some strikeouts that shouldn't be there, and that fell on the lap of Willie Wilson during his career. But that, that was the only thing. Uh, that was yeah. a downside to Willie Wilson. He was one heck of a player. Uh, that was a fun team to watch. Of course, I played for Kansas City in the – in the mid-70s when George was first coming up, uh, when Charlie now got a hold of Hal McRae and George Brett, it was all over but the shouting. Uh, he completely changed them around as hitters, and, uh, boy, they became uh, quite a force there in Kansas City with uh, Big John Mayberry 
and the rest of the crew that they put out on the field every day. It was a fun deal, and it was it was fun watching the Phillies back then. I used to love to go into Philadelphia and play that ball club because I really looked up to certain guys in the game. Well, I looked up to a lot of guys in the game, but there were there were a couple of guys that are on the Phillies that I really looked up to. Uh, one of them was Bob Boone. Um, I really looked up to Manny Trio just because of the way he went about playing the game. Even though he had a little hot dog in him, um, he still kept it down enough to where you didn't tick him off where you wanted to go into second base and try to kill him, although there were guys that did. And Boa was the other guy. Uh, Schmitty was, was always there um, as far as somebody to look up to. And I tell you what, probably within a year or two in 1980 was really when Smitty started to break out of things. Yeah. And, and get confidence in himself and, and didn't hear 40,000 boos every time he went to the plate. I mean, those fans in Philadelphia were brutal on Mike Schmitty oh, yeah. in the early Yeah, 70s. they were. Yeah, they were. I mean, and, 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 and uh, Schmitty has talked a lot about the fact of what an impact that Pete made on him and, and how Pete really got Schmitty to kind of get out of his own head a little bit and realize how, how good he actually could be. I mean, and I've, I've talked to other people about this. I mean, you know, I think I legitimately, and you would know this probably better than I would, obviously, having played the game, but I think Schmitty could have been a George Brett type of hitter had he focused more on hitting gaps as opposed to hitting the ball over the fence. I mean, he was such a cerebral hitter, really a student of hitting, and I think he, you know, had that ability. But when you can hit the ball out of the ballpark like he could, um, you know, that's what he chose to focus on. But I mean, what do you what do you think? Am I am I completely off base on that? Are you completely off base or completely right on? I, I'm, is, I'm asking you. Do you think I'm? Do you think I'm right? I you are completely right on, and I'm going to give you an example of what you just talked about, but in another sport. You mentioned the fact that Mike Schmidt was cerebral. I was playing in a golf tournament with Schmitty, who happens to be one heck of a golfer. And it was called the Big League Shootout, and it was down in Florida. And you had to qualify for the 18-hole shootout that was worth a half a million dollars. Wow. So they took the top 10 guys or the 10 lowest scores for the nine-hole tournament that they held in the morning. And then the next day, they had the 18-hole shootout that was televised. Myself, Johnny Bench, and Mike Schmidt are in the same group. Hmm. Mike's three under. JB was two under. And I was two under. We get to the 19. Mike Schmidt is striping every single ball that he swings at. He's hitting it right where he wants to, as far as he wants to and hitting everything pure. We get on a 19. There's hazard on the right. There's hazard in a creek on the left. It's a short par four that's a no-brainer. For Mike Schmidt, he could probably hit a five iron and a nine iron and two putt, and he's three under par and well into the tournament. You know what he says to me on the tee? What's that? He says, I got a feeling I'm going to push it into hazard on the right. Oh. I go, Schmidt, why would you even think or say anything like that? Because you know why? Because he was cerebral. He yeah. thought so much, especially early in his career, 
about where his hands were, whether or not he was getting locked in, whether or not he was his hands were going back as his stride was going forward. You know, everything that you can think about as a hitter that you really shouldn't be thinking about when you're at exactly. the plate trying to look at exactly. the ball, that's the exact thing he carried on to the golf course in later years. I'm, I'm talking about a few years ago. I'm not talking mm. about in 1980 this golf tournament took place. I'm just talking, you know, I'm talking about within the last eight years or so. And where do you think he hit it? Uh, I'm guessing he hit it right where he said he, he was. He said he hit it right in the hazard. <laughs> yeah, He did. And ended up making a five, which put him at two under, and he made he made the cut for the uh, for the big league challenge anyway. So it was uh, it was a fun time. But I sat down and had a beer with him afterwards, and I I just I got on him about that. And he goes, Kurt, I you know that's been me my whole life. So huh. you saying what you said about him just hits the nail on the head, and it was very interesting because I never knew. Mike Schmidt, good enough to get into him before that day about his thought process in the game of baseball. And this is the first time that I've talked about it with anybody since the day that I sat down with him after the round. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And your book must be one heck of a book. Tell everybody where they can find it, where they can get it. Uh, the easiest place just to do is to go on Amazon. It's called Finally with a P-H-P-H-I-N-A-L-L-Y apostrophe. Um, and it, that is indicative of the fact that the Phillies finally won the World Series that year. So uh, Amazon's the easiest place. The publisher is McFarland. So you could go to McFarland, um, McFarland Books website as well and get it there. So two of the easiest places to get it. Jonathan, thank you. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I hope we can do it again. Continued success. Uh, with the book, and uh, when you write another one, let me know. I want to know no what curtain. it's going to be about. Uh, I'm working on I'm working on some research right now, so hopefully I'll have something to announce here in the next uh, by by midsummer or something. So that'll I'll be definitely great. Let you know. And Kurt, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, it was my pleasure, Jonathan Daniel, folks. So got Jonathan Daniel, got Chris Welsh, we got the Ohio Connection tonight. Bless me, of course. I'm the Miami Beach connection. Uh, Both of those guys are huge baseball people in the Ohio area. Uh, Jonathan, uh, now living in Indianapolis, works at Indiana University. So if you want to read a good book about uh, the 80s, the 80 baseball season in particular, and about the Philly and Royal World Series, you got to go out and get Finale, as John just explained to you. A little takeoff of the Phillies. And finally, the Phillies' first World Series win. I thought they had had one early in the 1900s, but I wasn't sure. So that's why I asked them that. So speaking of wins, go to patreon.com slash Kurt and check us out and help us out. And I think you'll like what you see. Jack McKeon's going to be coming up. Peter Seidler, the owner of the San Diego Padres, is going to be coming up, the managing partner, the guy that made it possible to sign Manny Machado. If I was to venture a guess, I would say Peter has the last yes or the ultimate, okay, let's do it. Just a couple of the guests coming up. 
on Dirty Kurt's Dugout. I appreciate everybody listening. So until next time, this is Kurt Bavacqua saying goodbye, everybody. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with.